the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Wright Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we'll talk with Ann Polk. She is the executive director of Restored Hope Network. Uh, the headquarters has moved from the Portland area to Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'll talk to her about the move and what the organization is doing. We'll also talk about their June conference to which you are invited. But first, we'll take a look at some of the developing news stories of the day. Well, a new showdown is brewing in Congress as the president requested a total of $8.6 billion in new border wall funding as part of the White House budget proposal for the next fiscal year. It was released today. The president is looking to secure $5 billion from Congress for the Department of Homeland Security, plus $3.6 billion from the military construction budget. The request comes on top of the $8.1 billion that he already has access to, which includes money he's trying to shift from military military accounts after declaring a national emergency. The request faces all but certain rejection in Congress with a growing crisis at the southern border since Democrats control the House and spending bills in the GOP-led Senate need bipartisan support. And families from 35 countries are grieving as the victims in the deadly Ethiopian plane crash that left 157 dead, slowly being identified. Three Australian physicians, the co-founder of an international aid organization, a career ambassador, the wife and children of a Slovak legislator, a Nigerian-born Canadian college professor, author and satirist. They were all among the passengers who died Sunday morning when the Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 8 jetliner crashed shortly after takeoff from Adi Ababa en route to Nairobi, Kenya. The airline has said um, uh, eight Americans were also killed. Their names have not yet been released. Senator Bernie Sanders on Sunday returned to New Hampshire, the state that launched him into political orbit in 2016 and repeatedly targeted President Trump in a nearly hour-long speech. The 2020 um, presidential candidate pushed his progressive proposals, such as criminal justice reform, the Medicare for All single-payer health care plan, and universal affordable child care and once again vowed to make um, public college and university tuition free. However, Sanders made no mention of the Green New Deal, the sweeping proposal beloved by progressives but ridiculed rather by many Republicans that aims to transform the country's economy to fight climate change. And Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar ripped former President Barack Obama in an interview published on Friday, belittling his pretty face and saying his agenda of hope and change was an illusion. The New York Post reports she cited the caging of kids at the Mexican border and the droning of countries around the world on Obama's watch and argued that he wasn't much better or much different from President Trump. The broadside delivered at Obama is highly unusual for any Democrat, especially one who's been in the House for two months and has already ticked off party elders with her outspokenness. 
A federal judge in California who ordered the Trump administration to reunite more than 2,800 migrant families separated at the southwest border says potentially thousands more could be affected by his ruling. U.S. District Judge Dana Sabrov, San Diego, said in a preliminary ruling issued late Friday that parents who were separated from their children on or after the 1st of July 2017 should be included as part of a class action lawsuit brought by the American Civil Liberties Union. Sabrov said he will hold a hearing late this month to decide whether the government will have to identify and reunite the additional families. And Generation Z has a more positive view of the world, the word socialism than previous generations, and along with millennials, are more likely to embrace socialistic policies and principles than past generations, according to a new Harris poll, Axios reports. Among those two generations, 73.2% believe in taxpayer-funded universal health care, 67.1% believe in taxpayer-funded college, and 49.6% would rather live in a socialist country. Well, speaking of socialism, furious Venezuelans lined up to buy water and fuel on Sunday as the country endured a fourth day of a nationwide blackout that's left already scarce food rotting in shops, homes suffering for lack of water and cell phones without reception. Authorities have managed to provide only patchy access to power since the outage began on Thursday in what President Nicolas Maduro called an act of U.S. Backed sabotage, but critics insist it is the result of incompetence and corruption. And by the way, millennials and Generation Z are welcome to move to that socialist country if they so choose. A lawyer representing Covington Catholic High School student Nick Sandman said that Sandman plans to sue CNN for at least $250 million. CNN was probably more vicious in its direct attacks on Nicholas than the Washington Post, and CNN goes into millions of individual homes. It's broadcast into their homes, attorney L. N. Wood said of uh, Uh, Speaking to Mark Levin on his program, you have a situation where CNN couldn't resist the idea that here's a guy, a young boy with a Make America Great Again cap on. So they go after him and didn't do so accurately. The Trump administration is drawing up demands that Germany, Japan and eventually any other country hosting U.S. troops pay in full, plus 50 percent or more for the privilege that may see um, some nations ask to cough up five to six times as much as they do now. If the plan gets traction, it could prove to be a paradigm shift for U.S. foreign policy and its relationships around the world. It risks fanning debates in some countries about whether they even want U.S. troops and creating a vacuum that might give the advantage to the likes of China and Russia. And the Trump administration signaled on Friday it intends to implement a ban on transgender people serving in the military after a federal court struck down the last injunction against the policy the previous day. Former Defense Secretary James Mattis laid out a policy in March of 2018 that would allow transgender people to serve if they do so in their biological sex. Chairman, uh, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee demonstrated a scary lack of understanding of nuclear weapons policy on Wednesday during a hearing seeking outside perspectives on the U.S. nuclear posture. Chairman Adam Smith, a Democrat from Washington, jumped at the opportunity to attack the U.S. fleet of intercontinental ballistic missiles known as ICBMs, calling them unnecessary for deterrence and easily identifiable targets. Well, Smith misunderstands the value that ICBMs bring to U.S. national security and that of our allies, which is scary given the importance of the role that he plays. Well, on this day in 2014, in an extraordinary public accusation, the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Dianne Feinstein, declares the CIA interfered with and then tried to intimidate a congressional investigation into the agency's possible use of torture and terror probes during the Bush administration. 
And on this day in 1959, the Lorraine Hansberry drama, A Raisin in the Sun, opens at New York's Ethel Barrymore Theater. And on this day in 1954, the U.S. Army charges that Senator Joseph McCarthy, Republican from Wisconsin, and his subcommittee's chief counsel, Roy Cohn, had exerted pressure to obtain favored treatment for Private G. David Shine, a former consultant to the subcommittee. The confrontation would culminate in the famous Senate Army McCarthy hearings. Well, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. A reminder that in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Ann Polk, Executive Director of Restored Hope Network. Otherwise, we'll work our way through some of the day's news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, the Ethiopian airline flight that crashed minutes after takeoff from Ethiopia's capital on Sunday killed all 157 people on board, including some Americans, the airline and government officials have said. The airline left uh, Bol Airport in Adi Ababa, bound for Nairobi, Kenya, at about 8.38 a.m., before losing contact with the control tower minutes later. At 8.44 a.m., the crash occurred around uh, Bishoftu, uh, uh, or somewhere thereabouts, some 31 miles south of Adi Ababa. It was, it was not immediately clear what caused the crash of the 737, which was new and had been delivered to the airline in November, according to uh, records obtained by the Associated Press. The Ethiopian pilot sent out a distress call and was given clearance to return to the airport before the crash, the airline said. The plane showed unstable vertical speed after takeoff. Air traffic monitors uh, had announced. Well, state uh, broadcaster EBC recorded all passengers had died and that they included 33 nationalities. Uh, The airline's social media post said that uh, one of the... Uh, the accident scene uh, was one that uh, they had great regrets for to confirm that there were no survivors. The State Department confirmed that Americans uh, on that flight had not yet been identified. And uh, there have been some efforts to link the events that took place then to a flight that was down just days before in another country. In fact, Ethiopia and some other Asian countries have decided they will not take those particular planes up until this mystery is solved. We've been told that that, that information, because they've recovered the two black boxes, uh, should be made available within the next 36 to 42, 48 hours. President Trump kicked off a new battle with Congress uh, today by releasing his fiscal 2020 budget plan, seeking billions more in funding for a border wall and controversial work requirements for Americans collecting a variety of welfare benefits. Both proposals are sure to face resistance from Democrats, especially coming off a partial shutdown triggered by a border wall dispute that only ended when the president declared a national emergency over immigration, a step being uh, litigated in the courts and challenged in Congress. The requests are part of the president's $4.7 trillion budget plan. Escalating uh, the president's pursuit of wall funding, the White House in the new budget requested an additional $8.6 billion to build the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, seeking $5 billion from Congress plus $3.6 billion from the military construction budget for fiscal year 2020. Meanwhile, the budget aims to implement new welfare requirements, namely that Americans 18 to 65 uh, years old work at least 20 hours a week in a job, a job training program, or a community service program to secure a range of benefits 
and aid if they are able-bodied. And if the administ- and according to the administration, the work requirement would apply to federal programs like food stamps, Medicaid, and federal housing, but would come with a hardship exemption. Last year, the administration opened the door for states to impose work requirements for Medicaid re- recipients. Uh, this part of the budget proposal would bring those work requirements to the federal level. The proposal would represent an expansion of work requirements, though uh, some already are in place. For the past several administrations, able-bodied recipients of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, food stamps, have mostly had to work at least 80 hours a month, while recipients of traditional welfare known as temporary assistance for needy families uh, have also faced work requirements. The budget, meanwhile, projects a $1.1 trillion deficit for the fiscal year beginning October 1st, but also calls for deep cuts to domestic programs. In the last two years, President Trump and his administration have prioritized reining in reckless Washington spending. The budget that we have presented to Congress and the American people embodies fiscal responsibility and takes aim at Washington's waste, fraud and abuse. That's a quote from the Office of Management and Budget Acting Director Russ Voigt in a statement. Our national debt nearly doubled under the previous administration and now stands at more than $22 trillion. He continued, this budget shows that we can return to fiscal sanity without halting our economic resurgence while continuing to invest in critical priorities. Well, the budget also includes a national paid family leave proposal and seeks money to establish the Space Force as the new branch of the military while sharply curbing spending on domestic safety net programs. The Outline includes a total of $2.7 trillion in non-defense spending cuts, and the administration says the proposal would put the federal government on track to balance the budget by 2034, 15 years from now. I noted that Nate Jackson pointed out that the president's uh, 2020 budget proposal that was released today reveals his priorities um, and that the uh, deficit spending, as far as the eye can see, will continue at least for the next 15 years. Nearly er- every uh, House Democrat on Friday opposed a measure condemning voting in U.S. elections by illegal immigrants as part of a sweeping election reform bill. The GOP-backed measure would have added language to H.R. 1, we talked about last week, the election proposal, stating that allowing illegal immigrants the right to vote devalues the franchise and diminishes the voting power of the United States citizen. Well, federal law already prohibits non-citizens from voting in elections for federal office, but the GOP motion referenced how Senator, or rather San Francisco, is allowing non-citizens, including illegal immigrants, to register to vote in school board elections. The motion was voted down 228 to 197. All but six Democrats in the House voted against it. Just one Republican opposed it. Lauren Fine, a spokeswoman for House uh, GOP Whip Steve Scalise, pointed out that an identical resolution was adopted by the House last September, but on Friday, 41 Democrats flipped to oppose the latest version. These 41 Democrats must now answer to voters why they were against illegal immigrants voting in elections six months ago, but are suddenly in favor of it now. Well, the House on Friday later approved the Democrats-backed election bill. It would institute public financing of congressional campaigns, require presidential candidates to disclose tax returns, and make Election Day a federal holiday. But the measure is uh, dead on arrival in the Senate, where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says uh, he has already blasted the bill. H.R. 1, again, we talked about that last week. If you want to catch that conversation, you can check out our podcast. 
More than 960 people crossed into the United States illegally from the northern border with Canada last year. That's according to data released from Customs and Border Protection. And while that number is a tiny fraction compared to the migration across the border with Mexico, it represents a 91 percent increase from the prior fiscal year. The Trump administration's rhetoric on border security is largely honed in on the southern border where the crisis exists. It's been an influx of thousands of families with children from Central America seeking asylum in the U.S. But officials have also seen an increase in illegal crossings on the northern border in the last fiscal year, according to the data. In fiscal year 2017, immigration agents apprehended 504 people crossing illegally from Canada compared to 963 in fiscal year 2018, the Border Patrol data showed. A large percentage of that That spike came from the Swanton border patrol sector along the border with New Hampshire, Vermont and New York, where agents apprehended 548 people last year, up from 165 in 2017. Preliminary data from the October to January period shows 465 apprehensions from Canada with 219 in that Swanton sector. Border Patrol agent uh, Richard Ross, who runs the station uh, in Newport, Vermont, part of the Swanton sector, said that he thought the apprehensions were definitely trending up. He added that the type of apprehensions uh, agents were seeing were very organized, sometimes using smuggling organizations. He also said he believed there may be a precipitation uh, of uh, numbers and that the traveling from Canada was safer and increased uh, uh, could be attributed to recent immigration changes in Canada that allow those from some countries, such as Mexico and Romania, to enter without a visa. Then they um, turned to or tur- to in- try to enter the United States from the Canadian border. Well, a majority of House Democrats on Wednesday voted to lower the federal voting age from 18 to 16. A number of high-profile Democrats voted in favor of that legislation, including California Representatives Adam Schiff. Eric Swalwell, Maxine Waters, and Ted Lieu, Democratic presidential candidates in Hawaii, Representative uh, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Michigan Representative Rashida Talab, and Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar. Well, Democratic Massachusetts Representative uh, uh, Ayanna Presley introduced the legislation on Tuesday evening as an, an uh, amendment to House Democrats for the People Act, which would overhaul federal elections laws. Her amendment fell short, 126 to 305. Uh, House Democrats voted 125 to 105, 108 rather, in favor of her amendment, with two members voting present and three members not voting. House Republicans voted against the amendment, 197 to 1. Texas Representative Michael Burgess was the only Republican to vote aye. Presley cited teen activists pushing for gun control as a reason to give 16-year-olds the right to vote, which she compared to having a driver's license Young people are at the forefront of some of the most ex- existential crises, she said in her remarks. The time has come. Now, these 16-year-olds can't do a whole host of other things without their parents' consent or on their own. Voting, however, she and others thought should not be among those prohibitions. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the 5 o'clock hour, we will talk with Ann Polk, Executive Director of Restored Hope Network. We were talking about an effort in Washington, a a measure passed that would allow 16-year-olds to vote in the presidential uh, race. Um, We know that in the state of Oregon, there's also a measure uh, calling for 16-year-olds to be able to vote here. And I thought, hmm, what can and cannot 16-year-olds do? Okay, that wasn't 
said very well, but you get the idea. Well, 16 is the minimum age for being allowed an official beginner's driver's license with parental consent in many U.S. states with parental consent. In some states in the U.S., it's the age one can obtain a learner's permit. 16 is the minimum age for getting an adult job in most states and provinces across the globe. 16 is the minimum age that one can drop out of school in most states in the U.S., uh, female 16-year-olds earn the right to privacy laws surrounding her OBGYN practices here in the U.S. 16 is the minimum age to get married with parental consent. It's the minimum um, age at which you can donate blood with parental consent. The minimum age at which you can obtain a 10-year passport. A minimum age when you can move out of your parents' uh, home with your parents' consent. And the minimum age at which uh, one can um, engage in sexual activity without being classified uh, as uh, sexual assault. I'm not quite sure how that is being defined, but nonetheless, that's those are some of the lines that 16-year-olds um, have to face once they've um, celebrated their birthday. In other news, that House, the Democratic leaders of six congressional committees introduced a resolution in the House on Friday calling for special counsel Robert Mueller's forthcoming investigative report to be released to the public. The non-binding resolution comes as Mueller's probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 election is believed to be nearing an end. Of course, that has been the belief for quite some time. The public is clearly served by transparency with respect to any investigation that could implicate or exonerate the president and his campaign, the committee chair said in the statement. We urge our colleagues on both sides of the aisle to join us in supporting the common sense resolution, end quote. Well, Mueller is only uh, required to provide a report on his findings to the Justice Department. It's not clear how much, if any of it, will be provided to Congress or the public. The sponsors of the resolution included House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, Committee of, on Oversight and Reform Chairman Elijah Cummings, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff, Committee on Financial uh, Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters, Committee on Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal and Committee on Foreign Affairs Chairman Elliot Engel. This transparency is a fundamental principle necessary to ensure that government remains accountable to the people. It's always interesting to me how one party or the other values and cherishes transparency when it's possibly uh, possible to hurt the other side of the aisle. When you're looking at transparency for your own side that may be um, unflattering, it's not quite so important. So I always chuckle a bit in my own uh, heart, Fast and Furious and other events, transparency was not uh, called for by both sides of the aisle then. President Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, told uh, House investigators this week um, that staff of the uh, for the Intelligence Committee chairman, Adam, uh, Adam Schiff, traveled to New York at least four times to meet with him over 10 hours immediately before last month's high-profile public testimony, according to two sources familiar with the matter, as Republicans questioned whether the meetings amounted to coaching a witness. Well, the sources said the sessions covered a slew of topics addressed during the public hearing before the Oversight Committee, including the National Enquirer's catch-and-kill policy, American media CEO David Pecker, and the alleged um, undervaluing of President Trump's assets. But Republicans have signaled they're not convinced, with Ohio Representative Mike Turner sending a letter to Cohen's team on Wednesday demanding answers. Turner specifically asked for confirmation of Cohen's contacts, if any, with Democratic members or Democratic staff. Uh, of the committees uh, to which he spoke, as well as the lengths of such contacts for locations and who exactly was involved. These questions are important for the public to understand whether or not they were watching witness testimony, a public hearing, or well-rehearsed theater, he wrote. Well, during last month's seven-hour public hearing before the House Oversight Committee, Cohen hesitated. 
uh, hesitantly uh, acknowledged under questioning from Ohio GOP Representative Jim Jordan that he had spoken with Schiff about topics that were going to be raised at the upcoming hearing. So the nature of that questioning is now being questioned itself. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi revealed she's opposed to the impeachment of President Donald Trump in the absence of evidence that's compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan. Now, interestingly, people assume that impeachment means the individual is out of office. Well, no, they're being censured, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are out of office. She said, and I'm quoting, I'm not for impeachment. She was speaking to The Washington Post in an interview published on, well, today. Impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country and he's just not worth it, end quote. Well, the speaker's remarks ran counter to um, sentiments expressed by some freshman members of her caucus, most notably Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who vowed to Democratic activists, although in a rather uh, challenging way that she would help impeach the president using more colorful language hours after she was sworn in uh, this past January and last week announced that this month she would file uh, for a resolution to impeach the president. Well, despite her opposition to impeachment, Pelosi said Trump was unfit to be present president ethically, intellectually and uh, curiosity wise. However, she added that her own relationship with Trump has been respectful of the office that he holds. I'll just tell him what I think Pelosi said, adding that she was hopeful that at some point we can find common ground that he'll stick to. So yeah, respectful, honest and hopeful. However, Pelosi also accused the president of disregarding the constitution of the United States and disregarding our commitments to the world in terms of our commitments to NATO, uh, to Paris climate, to our values. When asked if she thought Trump had done anything good for America, Pelosi quipped, he's been a good organizer for Democrats, a great fundraiser for Democrats, and a great mobilizer at the grassroots level for Democrats, and I think that's good for America. Well, the Democratic National Committee has picked Milwaukee to host its 2020 National Convention, opting to shine the spotlight on a state Hillary Clinton famously avoided in 2016. And a nod to the city's working class roots and Midwestern values over the glitz and glamour of rival bidders. DNC Chairman Tom Pence announced today that the party was had selected the Wisconsin hub over Miami and Houston, marking the first time in more than 100 years Democrats will gather at a Midwest city other than Chicago, to nominate their presidential candidate. A strategic move indeed. Well, this choice is a statement of our values, and I'm thrilled Milwaukee will host the 2020 Democratic National Convention, Perez said in a statement. The Democratic Party is the party of working people, and Milwaukee is a city of working people. The convention in Wisconsin is set to take place July the 13th through the 16th of 2020, with the brand new... Um, uh, Forum Arena, home of the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks, serving as the centerpiece of the convention. This is a great day for the city of Milwaukee and for the states of uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett said in a statement. Milwaukee is a first-class city, and we are ready to showcase Milwaukee on one of the largest stages in the world. Well, Milwaukee's Midwestern location and Wisconsin's role as a key swing state in the 2020 election helped to win out other rivals like Miami and Houston. In 2016, Democratic presidential nominee Clinton failed to campaign in the state, which went to uh, President Trump on Election Day. The city was originally one of the eight bidding to host the DNC convention. And in June of last year, when the field was uh, slashed to four, Denver quickly dropped out and left Milwaukee to compete with Miami and Houston for the top spot. And today we learned that Milwaukee won that bid. 45 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, from campaigns to abolish the Senate to the growing movement to upend the Electoral College after Hillary Clinton's defeat in the 2016 presidential election, progressives have few qualms about getting rid of longstanding constitutional institutions. Now they're doubling down on their efforts to wage war on the Supreme Court. Former Attorney General Eric Holder said Thursday that Democrats should consider court packing during an appearance at Yale, noting that he would try to add two seats if he were president. Well, he um, rather the left has relied on the Supreme Court to solidify its policy gains over the past half century in particular. Now it faces the prospect of an originalist leaning institution overturning some progressive precedents. Well, left-wing groups are openly advocating that the next Democrat president pack the Supreme Court to expand the number of justices beyond the now traditional nine. Politico reported that one initiative, appropriately named Pack the Courts, is trying to get 2020 presidential candidates to sign on to a pledge to do just that. At Demand Justice, we strongly believe that reforming the court, especially by expanding it, is the cornerstone of rebuilding American democracy. That's a quote from Brian Fallon, director of the Demand Justice and a former Hillary Clinton press secretary. The Kavanaugh court is a partisan operation and democracy simply cannot function when stolen courts operate as political shills. We are thrilled to work in coalition with the team at Pack the Courts to undo the politicization of the judiciary, end quote. Well, some Democrats, at least initially, have resisted the court packing temptation. We'll see where that goes. However, the left will um, uh, exert enormous pressure on Democrats to buckle under the power of the uh, base that's unconcerned about preserving institutions that they see as standing in the way of social justice. Well, this partisan attempt to pack the court under the guise of reform is nothing new. When Justice Anthony Kennedy, often seen as a swing vote on the court, retired, some immediately jumped in to make the case that it was a time to use full-blown court packing once they uh, returned to power. Well, the fact that progressives made this argument before Justice Brett Kavanaugh even sat on the high court shows that there wasn't really a deeper problem with the Kavanaugh court other than the fact that it now contained more originalists. Well, one has uh, to imagine, too, that if President Donald Trump simply took the left's advice and started carrying out his own court packing, they would denounce him as a tyrant. However, it's far too, uh, too much to expect um, intellectual consistency in this matter. The Supreme Court has traditionally con- constituted a threat to the left's ability to radically transform America, and it must be destroyed. And while this brazenly partisan attempt to blow the Supreme Court has certainly been an uncommon phenomenon in recent political debates, it's not entirely unprecedented. The Constitution actually says nothing about the number of Supreme Court justices who serve for life, or more specifically, during good behavior. In the early 19th century, the Supreme Court size changed a few times with little fanfare, in part due to the lesser capacity of the federal government in those days. The court wasn't seen as powerful and important as it is today. A high court uh, settled into having nine justices in 1869 and has stayed that way ever since. Only once was this number seriously challenged. After that, President Franklin Roosevelt infamously attempted to court pack in the 1930s. When the Supreme Court struck down many of his cherished New Deal programs, FDR threatened to pack the court with new justices. Specifically, he requested that Congress allow him to appoint a new justice for every current justice over 70. Roosevelt cited age and caseload as the reasons uh, to carry out his plan, but as popular as FDR was in 1937, the country responded negatively. The plan was met with fierce resistance. Democrats had almost unprecedented control of Congress at the time, but many lawmakers recoiled at the idea of bludgeoning the Supreme Court and undermining its independence. 
At a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, Erwin um, Griswold, a professor at Harvard Law School, said dramatically in 1937, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, there are at least two ways of getting rid of judges. One is to take them out and shoot them as they are reported to do in at least one other country. The other way is more uh, genteel, but no less effective. They are kept on the public payroll, but their votes are canceled. Many Americans saw FDR's move as a naked power grab, not unlike Thomas Jefferson's attempt to impeach Federalist justices when he was president, which he didn't go, uh, which rather didn't go well. Almost paradoxically, these perceived partisan attacks on the court have served to strengthen its reputation in the United, the American mind for good or for ill. But can we uh, be so sure that the country would be united in thwarting such a brazen scheme today? Well, openly embracing socialism was once thought unthinkable in mainstream American politics, too. So for now, the movement to pack the court may just be a palliative uh, to soothe the anger of the left wing base. However, if these ideas ever came to fruition, they would cause further damage to the notion that we live under a constitutional system that puts law over men. Senator Burton Wheeler, a staunch Democrat ally of Roosevelt, gave perhaps the most succinct reason to oppose such a court packing scheme back in 1937 in a speech in which he said, create now a political court to echo the ideas of the executive and you have created a weapon. A weapon which, in the hands of another president in times of war or other hysteria, could well be an instrument of destruction. A weapon that can cut down those guarantees of liberty written into your great document by the blood of your forefathers, and that can extinguish your right of liberty, of speech, of thought, of action, and of religion. A weapon whose use is only dictated by the conscience of the wielder. Wise counsel then... Certainly relevant counsel now. It's certainly correct to worry about the power of the Supreme Court, which has become distended compared to the original intent of the founding fathers. But taking a partisan axe to the way the court is structured won't fix the problem. Well, on Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that employers added to 20,000 jobs, not two, but 20,000 jobs in February, falling well before below expert predictions that estimated 180,000 jobs be added. Well, while this number can, can and should be higher, the report also reflects that the job markets in general is still strong, posting 101 consecutive months of job creation, showing a steady increase of wages for Americans. More Americans are employed than ever before. The report showed that the unemployment rate fell from 4% in January to 3.8% in February, and the labor force participation rate was essentially unchanged. In addition, U6 unemployment number, which measures both the discouraged workers who aren't currently looking for work, as well as those holding jobs part-time for economic reasons, fell to a five-month low from 8.1% to 73 well, this signals that uh, those who want to find a job can easily find one. In addition, upward revisions from December and January added 12,000 jobs to the workforce. Among the major worker groups, the unemployment rates for adults, uh, adult men rather, 3.5%, Caucasians 3.3%, Hispanics 4.3% decreased in February. The jobless rates for adult women, teenagers, and Asians uh, showed little or no change over the month, 34 13.4 and 3.1 percent, respectively. And while African-American unemployment did increase slightly, climbing from 6.8 percent in January to 7 percent in February, the unemployment rate for disabled Americans dropped to a low 8 percent in 2018. 
Well, CNN is likely to be hit with a massive lawsuit worth more than $250 million over alleged vicious and direct attacks on Covington Catholic High School student Nick Sandman. His lawyer told uh, Fox News earlier today, Lynn Wood uh, discussed his uh, decision to sue CNN for its reporting and coverage of his client during an interview airing uh, Sunday night. CNN was probably more vicious in its direct attacks on Nicholas than The Washington Post. And CNN goes into millions of individual homes, Wood said, um, speaking to Mark Levin. Well, CNN couldn't resist the idea that here's a guy with a a uh, young uh, boy that with a make America great again cap on. So they go after him. Now you um, you say you've seen the tape. If you uh, took the time to look at the full context of what happened that day, Nicholas Sandman did absolutely nothing wrong. He was, as I've said to others, he was the only adult in the room. But you have a situation where CNN couldn't resist the idea. Would continue. The CNN folks were online on Twitter at 7 a.m. retweeting the little one minute propaganda piece that had been put out. Uh, they're out uh, there right away going after this young boy, and they maintain it for at least two days. Why didn't they stop and just take an hour and look through the Internet and find the truth and then report it? Maybe do that before you report the lies. Well, apparently they picked up a clip, a very short clip of a video that was misinterpreted. The lengthier version of the video illustrated that nothing had actually happened that was alleged, but not before CNN had trashed this uh, kid as a racist, among other things. Um, and the uh, campaign went on for several days. There were death threats and all kinds of things uh, pointed at this, what, 15, 16-year-old kid. Well, we're going to take a break here in a moment for news and traffic at the top of the page. When we come back, I want to share with you Kyle Smith writing on recycling and what it's meant. It took a man only 20 centuries or so to give up trying to transmute base metals into gold, he writes. How long will it take us to stop trying to turn our rubbish into gold? Well, John Tierney put it um, 23 years ago in the New York Times, recycling is garbage. That's a quote. It may make sense to recycle a few items for the saving in carbon emissions, paper, cardboard, and metal, such as aluminums from cans. Recycling a a ton of these items saves about uh, three tons of carbon dioxide. Glass, plastic, rubber, all of the other stuff? Not really. We used to send our plastic empties to China, but China has lost interest, as the Atlantic's uh, Alana Samuels reports in, is this the end of recycling? Well, the subhead reads, now that other countries won't take our papers and plastics, they're ending up in the trash. Well, some municipalities are directing those recycling trucks to the nearest incinerator. A transfer station in New Hampshire reports that sending rubbish to a landfill costs $68 a ton. Recycling it, $125 a ton. But recycling was supposed to save money, not cost twice as much. We'll talk about that. When we return, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show News and Traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Six minutes after five o'clock. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Ann Polk. She's the executive director of Restored Hope Network. We'll let you know what's uh, what's happening with the organization that was headquartered right here in the Portland metro area has since moved to uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, and they've got a conference coming up this uh, summer as well. We've been talking about a Kyle Smith column in which he points out that recycling, uh, the headline read, is a waste and the challenge that we now face since China in particular is not taking our rubbish. He points to an episode of uh, Showtime series that starred Penn and Teller that profiled an L.A. woman who um, averred of recycling. It just seems like the right thing to do. I feel like I'm being a good person. I'm doing my part. I'm setting an example for my kids. It's a way of life. She worried that not recycling might put more toxins in her food, which 
didn't quite make sense. But to explore just how much people would uh, put up with, Penn and Teller's team sent a crew to one of uh, one L.A. couple's house and explained to them a new pilot program that would create several new categories of recycling, each with a color-coded bin. The bin is for lightly soiled toilet paper. One was for wet food. One was for labeled um, metal can. By the time the crew were done, the hapless citizens had nine huge bins on their curb. Well, how did they respond to the elaborate prank? They not only couldn't to tell it was a prank. They loved it. Um, I think it's an excellent program, uh, said one of them. Well, uh, people can lose track of cost-benefit analysis if they feel virtuous. What about all the time it takes in the household to wash and sort this stuff? How much is it going to a cost to convert all the rubbish into usable material? Los Angeles estimates that because of recycling programs, it operates twice as many trucks as it otherwise would. Recycling wrote tyranny in his monumental 1996 piece may be the um, most wasteful activity in modern America, a waste of time and money, a waste of human and natural resources, costing significant more just to transport the stuff than any benefit that might be derived. If there is a St. Paul of the recycling movement, it might be J. Winston Porter, the EPA official behind an official federal paper, The Solid Waste Dilemma, an agenda for action that advised Americans back in 1989 that we were running out of landfill space and that recycling is absolutely vital. Possibly no policy change in the last half century has proved so popular. Is there any cheaper way to purchase a sense of virtue? Tossing your Dannon container in a color-coordinated barrel is a lot more convenient than going to church, much less paying attention to the service. Yet today, even Porter is questioning the recycling boom, telling Tyranny that most kinds of recycling, such as composting, make no sense at all. Now, this comes as a shock to those of us who have been uh, told and believe that this is absolutely the, the, uh, the right thing and the best thing to do. Now, we like the idea of things being reused, but is it as effective as we have been led to believe? He goes on, the environmental cost of trash has been oversold. All of the trash Americans produce over the next millennium would fit on one-tenth of one percent of the land available for grazing. Lots of rural communities are open for business when it comes to accepting urban rubbish. There is no landfill storage. If uh, If you've ever been to the U.S. Open Tennis Championships in Queens, you've seen what becomes of landfills. Arthur Ashe Stadium is built on one. Modern landfills have little environmental impact, although they do produce methane, a potent potent, um, greenhouse gas. New landfills capture the methane or use it for fuel, however. Americans who perhaps have a bit more difficulty finding ways to certify their own virtue. Recycling is really popular in places such as San Francisco and Park Slope, not so much in places where people actually go to church, are going to be stubborn about giving up their recycling habits. But New York City's recycling program is a costly disaster. It runs New Yorkers $300 more to recycle a ton of trash than it would uh, to put in a landfill. When uh, When the next budget crunch hits New York, and by the way, I read an article today suggesting the next recession... New York City will be bankrupt, and that's due approximately 10 seconds after the next stock market crash. Recycling would be an excellent program to cut. Recycling that empty bottle of um, Poland Spring is so expensive that it's cheaper to simply manufacture a new one. As for emissions benefits, Tierney notes that uh, to offset the impact of a round-trip flight between New York and London, you'd have to recycle 40,000 plastic bottles. If you fly coach... That is. Uh, That's if you don't account for the effects of um, rinsing out the bottle 
uh, before putting it in the bin. Use hot water and your recycling habit might actually be adding to total emissions. Well, these points have been made for many years and they'll be made for many more because the warm glow of virtue, especially when it comes at no visible cost to the consumer, is just too hard to resist. As The Onion put it way back in 1997, EPA recycling eliminated more than 50 million tons of guilt in 1996. Well, it's an interesting thing to consider. What we have established as practice, is it actually um, yielding the kinds of returns and benefits that we had hoped for or had been led to believe? And the answer, uh, sadly, appears to be not in every case, and the costs may outweigh the benefits. Well, according to national and local crime statistics, Portland is one of the worst cities in the country when it comes to uh, how many cars are stolen per person in the city. Um, One uh, resident here had her 1988 Toyota Camry stolen five times in and around the Portland metropolitan area over the last 20 years. Same car. So I bought the, um, the club. I was told it was foolproof. Well, it's not because it was taken twice with the club, she says. It's been stolen while she was at work, bowling with friends in front of her condo and from a hospital parking lot. It was most recently stolen from her mechanics shop late last year. She started it with a little pen knife because it was uh, still in the ignition. Uh, She said the woman uh, told police her boyfriend let her use the car. They apparently found her. If he gave her permission to use the car, you would have thought he'd have the keys. Well, um, She was convicted, unauthorized use of a vehicle and resisting arrest in early December. She received a probationary sentence. The probation was revoked at the end of January after failing to report to her probation officer. And that was that. But for the car owner, having to deal with this a fifth time was her breaking point. I just kind of lost it. It's not great uh, value to anyone but me. I can't afford a new car. Well, Portland was recently ranked fifth for the most cars stolen per population in the U.S., According to data from the Portland Police Bureau, there were 7,567 cars stolen in Portland from January 2018 to January 2019. That's a 6% dip compared to 2017 to 2018, a record-breaking 8,073 car thefts in Portland, and an increase of 27% from 2016 to 2017. When you look at car thefts across the state, Oregon saw an increase of 53% between 2012 and 2017, according to the data. It's really reached epidemic proportions, according to Clackamas County Chief Deputy District Attorney Chris Owen. Owen blames two Oregon courts of appeal cases in 2014 and 15 to making rather for making it extremely difficult to prosecute car theft cases. What the Court of Appeals has said, even the strongest circumstantial case isn't going to uh, to be enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. In one case, uh, State versus Ship, the defendant was caught by police in the stolen car with tools to steal the car, including bolt cutters and a case labeled crime committing kit. And in the second case, State versus Court, the defendant was also caught in a stolen car, but told officers he borrowed it from a friend of a friend. In both cases, the court determined the state did not prove the person had knowingly taken a stolen car. Now, keep in mind, the first case I mentioned, State versus Ship, the defendant was caught by the police in the car with tools to steal the car, including bolt cutters and a case labeled crime committing kit. There were not, uh, there wasn't enough evidence to convict. So these two cases have made it less likely that whoever steals your car is going to uh, uh, have to face justice. You can have a story as to how they came in contact with the car, which lacks all credibility, and that still may not be enough. Uh, The district attorney says, well, according to the National Insurance Crime Bureau, comparing two years prior, 2012, and post-2017, 
Uh, in these cases, every Oregon metropolitan statistical area except one experienced an increase in vehicle theft, ranging from an increase of 16.22% to 79%. Uh, one senator in the Oregon legislature, re- uh, representing Gresham, number eight on the list of worth uh, places for stolen cars, by the way, if you live in Gresham, all the defendant has to say is, I didn't know it was stolen. Even if I myself stole it, I didn't realize uh, the lawmaker says uh, just uh, she rather just introduced legislation that she says would close the loophole in the law, making it easier to prosecute car thieves and making the excuse of I didn't know it was a stolen car less valid. Um, that are that's our job, she says, to make sure that we can take care of things like this. House Bill 2328, by the way, has been introduced and signed uh, assigned rather to the House Committee on Ways and Means. House Bill 2328. Wow. All right, we're going to take a quick break, 16 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with my friend, Ann Polk. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Joining us is Ann Polk. She is a dear friend of mine. She's also the executive director of Restored Hope Network, recently relocated to uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And it's a delight to speak to you, even if it is at some distance. Welcome, Ann. Thank you so much, Georgine. What a delight to be with you. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with the work of Restored Hope Network, although I, I hope we've done a, a good enough job that people are familiar. But let's begin by talking about the work that this coalition of ministries is doing all across the country. Well, it's our delight to be here um, and exist for the fact that um, individuals are wanting to leave homosexuality and uh, assisting them in that process of walking out of the homosexual life with uh, Jesus' help and his people. You know, this notion of sexual sin seems to be in the 21st century something of an oxymoron. We don't want to admit that any expression of one's sexual desire is uh, is somehow uh, to be rejected. How much of a challenge is it for Restored Hope Network in this context, even in the church, uh, to do its work in proclaiming the message that that Jesus still has the power to transform in this area? Well, I'll tell you, you've hit the, uh, the biggest challenge of our day, honestly. Um, it is actually very difficult uh, for the body of Christ to stand alongside the message of the actual gospel that Jesus changes and transforms lives uh, in the area of homosexuality. It has been um, a concerted effort from the gay community, but now also from within, uh, to eradicate the hope of life transformed in Jesus. Um, and what we mean by transformation is actually a change of who the person's identity is. Are they gay or are they Christian? Um, and lately there have been a whole lot of advocates advocating for gay Christianity. Secondly, um, what, uh, what do they do with their temptation? Do, do they act upon those temptations? Is that okay? Is it okay according to Scripture? Um, clearly it's not, uh, but then there's a whole other realm of um, chastity and behavior and celibacy in your, in your sexuality unless it lines up with God's stated intent in Scripture, which is covenant relationship between one man and one woman. And that is scandalous in this time. Mm-hmm. It's scandalous with, um, uh, honestly, with congregants as well as it is in many cases with uh, Christian colleges and universities, um, they're 
they're simply giving way to culture instead of standing on God's eternal truth and his plan that he intended to reflect his own nature through this relationship, this unusual relationship between man and woman that stands out from any of and every other kind of relationship that there is, this covenant marriage relationship is deeply significant to the heart of God. And of course, it reflects back upon his own desire to be the bridegroom and us, the church, his bride. And so it it reflects this eternal image that if we hand that over and give it up, then we've certainly given up a core part of the image of God and his intent for humanity. There is significant pushback against that message, both from within and outside of the church. And there's, it's even gone so far as to suggest that um, dissent should be criminalized, that making the statement, that attempting to come alongside someone who has decided on their own, this is the course I'd like my life to take, and I, I need help uh, making this uh, decision a, a life-transforming um, decision— there are efforts to make it impossible to even suggest the possibility or certainly to come alongside and walk with someone. Talk about the work of um, Restored Hope Network's partners uh, who do just that. When an individual says, I've decided I want my life to line up with what the scripture says in terms of moral and sexual purity uh, in, the, in the context of the church, in the context of my faith, how does Restored um, Hope Network's partners, uh, how do they come alongside those individuals? Well, happily, we have about 50 partners across the U.S., including Portland Fellowship, which is the local support in your town, mm-hmm. right in Portland. Um, and so what they do is they come alongside in the form of either Christian counseling or discipleship care uh, with either trained um, counseling degrees, individuals who are, are assisting these individuals um, one-on-one uh, counseling time, uh, pastoral care, and also lay care. Um, and they also offer small groups. They offer prayer time. They offer meetings for parents to encourage them as a loved one uh, may have just embraced the gay or transgender world. And it's devastating to a parent to go through that as well. Um, so, yes, all across the U.S. we have ministries that are offering these things and laboring and just expending themselves on behalf of men and women who are finding themselves dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction, realizing it's sin, and that God doesn't hate them at all, but that he wants them to align with his plan. And that means walking faithfully as a single person, or uh, if they're in an opposite gender marriage, then they need to uh, be faithful in that marriage also. And so these men and women come alongside of those individuals in both situations and help them walk through these challenges. And there are many, and they're becoming much, much more complex than they ever were prior to the the gay marriage amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, We have now children who are growing up in uh, same-sex parent situations where the parents are married and going through divorce, and one person maybe comes to Christ and the other doesn't. And now what happens with custody issues and all sorts of things It's incredibly complex. Um, It was much easier before the culture and the American culture embraced homosexual marriage. Um, It just added layers and layers of complexity. Uh, But praise God, we have people who are willing and have thought through these things and are able to help others. 
Now, contrast what the partners of Restored Hope Network do, do and conversion therapy, which is a phrase that has been coined to deliberately mislead much of the work um, that's being done to come alongside those who say, look, I need help. This is the decision I've made for the course of my life. Right. Well, I'll tell you what. Conversion therapy is not a Christian phrase. Um, it has nothing to be to do with being converted to Christ. It actually is a, a cultural reference to the belief that a person can be forcibly changed or coerced, or someone else can come up to someone's chest and flip the light switch, essentially, okay, you were gay, now we're going to make you straight. And that's ridiculous. That is not even possible um, and, and really wrong. And, of course, it's like a kitchen sink concept. They throw into that sort of philosophy, um, linking it with some degree of so-called therapy. Uh, they add in there these false concepts of aversion therapy, which is um, uh, punitive-type therapy, which is not a therapy, FYI, and also a... Um, uh, coercion. So they're throwing in coercion and aversion and all these other things, and then they bring in testimonies of individuals like Sam Brinton, who claims that he was electroshocked or ice baths or all sorts of things. But his mother even said uh, he's never even been to counseling related to homosexuality or sexuality at all in his in his teenage years. So um, he's coming up with these stories, and it's making its way through the UN Commission on Human Rights and mm. Against Torture and, and legislatures all over the country uh, trying to ban counseling. We're not trying to ban conversion therapy. We're actually trying, they're trying to ban counseling. And the whole point of counseling is simply to help people have some different outcome than they're currently having. I don't care what you're going to counseling for, you're going because you want something to change. So change-allowing counseling is simply counseling. And so what these folks are really after is to uh, malign free speech in a professional context because they don't want other people to be allowed to align with their faith and get support in doing it. Um, They don't want to align with their faith. They don't believe uh, Christianity or some other faith that includes that homosexuality is... uh, not a so-called normal behavior. And so therefore they they want to shut down the possibility of other people leaving homosexuality and that's that's altogether wrong. It is um that would be a tyrant if the person was ruling, right? That mm-hmm. that is simply ideology. That is not about a technique. It is an ideological purpose and they're succeeding all across the US based yeah. upon these false stories. Based on the false stories, and I, I believe a deliberate campaign to mislead as well by lumping together things that are unrelated under that uh, that category. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we uh, return, we'll continue our conversation with Ann Polk, Executive Director of Restored Hope Network. I also want to talk about Hope 2019. It's a conference coming up uh, this June. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Ann Polk. She is the executive director of Restored Hope Network. It's an organization that's doing uh, tremendous work. I should say a coalition of ministries all across the country linked together through Restored Hope Network, uh, helping men and women um, align their uh, personal lives with what Scripture 
uh, says. And so I'm just delighted to have you with us. One of the highlights of the calendar year for Restored Hope and the work that uh, you all do is Hope. Uh, the conference uh, 2019 is coming up June 21st and 22nd. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the conference. It is my delight. It will be really something this summer. We're having June Hunt join us from Texas and Alex McFarland, who's an excellent apologetic speaker out of uh, North uh, South Carolina, I beg your pardon. Julie Slattery will be joining us, who's a, uh, a counselor on the board of Moody uh, Bible Institute and uh, the founder, co-founder of Authentic Intimacy, and so she will have some wonderful words to share with us. And Phil Corson, who's a pastor on our board of directors and senior pastor of Abundant Grace Community Church, will be bringing a message about the biblical basis for transformation. Um, but that's that's what we are really standing for, and and the amazing testimonies of people's lives, real lives, that God is in the midst of transforming is another powerful piece to the summer. In fact, it's so compelling, uh, the love and kindness of God, that we've had um, we've had gay activists attend, and we're really happy they come. We're, they're welcome to do that. Um, they're welcome to experience the kindness of God in the middle of uh, what's going on. And we've had people walk away being blown away by the love of God mm-hmm. uh, in Hope 20 and the various uh, years. So... Anyway, I'm really excited about it. And Georgine, I'm so delighted that you're going to join us in MC again this year. Um, what you, you're doing another keynote, honestly, from that position. You're just such a delight in uh, coordinating. Well, I appreciate that encouragement. And I have to say that, as you just mentioned a moment ago, the testimonies of God's transformative work in the hearts of the men, women, young people that come and uh, offer their testimonies, the teaching that's there. I always leave, the worship is incredible. I always leave encouraged and inspired and reminded of, as you put it, the kindness of God, the power of God to to transform um, all of us from whatever our condition uh, starting out happens to have been. And so I'm delighted to be there once again because it is faith affirming. It's encouraging, it's inspiring and challenging and all of those things. This year, it's, uh, as I mentioned, June the 21st and 22nd at uh, Redeemer Evangelical Lutheran Church in um, Robbinsdale, Minnesota. Robbinsdale, Minnesota. That's right. It'll be beautiful there and um, and just delightful to be all together. And I know uh, we, going to the center of the country, the Midwest, is a... Uh, a powerful place to be too. It just is easier for everybody to get to. Mm-hmm. We only hold these once a year though. And so if you're uh, thinking, if you're listening and thinking, gosh, I really want to go, uh, come this year because it won't happen again until next summer, um, which might be in Seattle. So we're waiting to find out about that, but that's very exciting too. So we might be back out on the West Coast. That would be the light. Yeah. Let's talk about who should come. I know the point is to restore hope, to proclaim truth, to equip churches, to uh, to advocate boldly for scriptural integrity, and that is so needed these days. Who should come to Hope 2019? Do you have to be struggling personally in these areas, or how would you describe the, the perfect attendee? Well, I'll tell you, it's a variety of people, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope that strugglers come, people who are dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction, who are exploring uh, living for Jesus with uh, dealing with homosexual desire. So those would be a primary audience. But there's also a whole bunch of parents and family and loved ones who attend 
who are looking for support, and there's plenty of it at this conference as well. We have special breakouts for you and um, uh, special special interest groups, actually, uh, time connecting with others and, and being encouraged by other parents. We also have usually a, a great number of pastors and counselors who attend, Christian leaders. Mm -hmm. If you're a youth minister, you're going to run into all these things. Best to have a biblical perspective as you walk in the door and are dealing with um, individuals in your congregation who are dealing with these issues. Um, we've also had people come to our conference who've been very, very encouraged who have actually been harmed by the gay movement, like um, the photographers, the cake bakers, the, you name it. All those individuals who have almost lost it all have found uh, coming to the HOPE conference to be a tremendous encouragement and a shot in the arm for them. And so if you want to come and hear God moving in the middle of a time that says it's not possible, that you can't leave homosexuality, and here are these people willing to throw it all with abandon into Jesus and give themselves completely to his ways and walk out his ways. It's a pretty profound time. Yeah. And so um, I, I'm always encouraged, and I no longer struggle with that, but I once did. Um, I'm always blessed by the men and women who are beginning or somewhere along that journey. Um, it is a time when we've had pastors say, this is the best conference I've ever been to. Um, so... I don't know. <laughs> I haven't been to all their conferences, <laughs> but uh, we're thrilled to provide encouragement and hope and, and opportunity to trust yeah, yeah. the heart of God. Well, the Hope 2019 conference, like the, the conference the year before and the year before that, you'll get powerful biblical teaching, inspired worship, love the worship, real stories from people who've dealt with same-sex attraction, have been transformed by the living God, practical help, and much more. Once again, June Hunt, uh, Alex McFarland, Julie Slattery, Phil Corson will all be among the speakers. And as you pointed out, there are workshops that you can attend that are more specific uh, to um, the the interests and concerns of attendees as well, but it's just a great uh, a great time for equipping um, and for training and uh, for encouragement uh, at this at this conference. Uh, as you look ahead, um, and how do you see this issue shaping up primarily in the church? What's going on in the world? I suppose shouldn't surprise any of us at any time, but but in the church. Um, I'm concerned that over time we're going to lose the uh, the um, the hope that we once had in Christ, that he does have the power in every area of the human life to transform and change. Are you concerned that we're moving down a slippery slope from which we, the church I'm referring to, is unlikely to recover? Or what is your thinking about the future? Well, I'll tell you, I would have thought that about a year and a half ago. I was feeling that deeply, and that caused me to pray very hard for the church. Um, in the last year since we've been fighting uh, related to the banning of anybody, uh, adults and anything in California, uh, from getting any care and even purchasing materials, for that matter, uh, from out of state. That was so presumptuous, uh, book banning and everything else in order to shut down hope for those who want to help, have help to leave. Um, it was so audacious. Um, and when that bill was pulled, by the time it was pulled, we had so many people uh, lining up for the hope of the gospel that it doesn't exclude people who are dealing with same-sex attraction. Um, that it encouraged me tremendously, Georgine. I'm seeing almost a, a reversal. I'm beginning to see the awakening of the church 
and um, that is something my heart has longed for. Um, it probably helps a little bit being in Colorado and mm-hmm. having just come from South Carolina, where we had 200 uh, church leaders attend uh, an equip conference that we just put on, and that was tremendously encouraging. Their stand and their desire to stand alongside of transformation was beautiful, and I think we're just seeing a turning, and that gives me a great deal of hope that their uh, hope will rise, and um, and that's what's missing right now. Um, hope has been crushed over and over again, and it's time for hope to rise. And so I will continue praying along those lines. Well, Anne, I so appreciate your leadership. I look forward to seeing you face-to-face in June and want to encourage our listeners, if you'd like more information, you can go to RestoredHopeNetwork.org for more information to register and get all those important details. And thank you so much for taking your very precious time to talk with us today. What a delight and always wonderful to be with you, Georgine. Thank Thanks you. so much. Bye-bye. Again, Ann Polk, Executive Director of Restored Hope Network. Check them out at RestoredHopeNetwork.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. This is our final segment. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Lois Anderson. She is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. They have a conference coming up. Together we advocate. We're also going to get the latest on some bills that have very much to do with life and death in the Oregon legislature. And we'll talk with Steve Van Horn. He's the director of Item Ministries, International Teaching and Equipping Ministry. On Wednesday, we'll talk with uh, Barbara Marlowe. She's the co-author of A Brave Face, Two Cultures, Two Families, and the Iraqi Girl Who Bound Them Together. Now, given the title, you might imagine Imagine that this has something to do with the disfigurement of this young Iraqi girl, and you would be right. We'll talk more about that on Wednesday with her. We're also going to talk with David John Steele, Jr. He's the author of the new um, Copernicans, Millennials and the Survival of the Church. A very important conversation, an important book. He'll join me on Wednesday in the uh, latter half of uh, the program. Again, David John Seal, The New Copernicans, Millennials, and the Survival of the Church. And then on Thursday, we're looking forward to our World Concern Radiothon, where we'll return to the 44-cent cure. Some of you might remember that. Um, Infection from parasites is uh, very devastating a condition that leaves many children vulnerable and ends in the the deaths of many children. I'll tell you, perhaps on uh, on Thursday, my story with parasites, both treating them and having carried some home. Uh, when we have our World Concern Radiothon on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. And I guarantee after two hours of parasites, I think we'll all be ready for just that. I noted that um, this is an insensitive year for China, and they're warning against erroneous thoughts there. I focus on it because I have a, a desire to keep our minds thinking about praying for and concerned about the persecuted church. And this is the condition in which or under which many in the body of Christ in China are currently functioning. Uh, Reuters is reporting that China's ruling Communist Party is ramping up calls for political loyalty in a year of sensitive anniversaries. And they're warning about erroneous thoughts as officials um, 
fall over themselves to pledge allegiance to President Xi Jinping and his philosophy. Now, you might recall that he has made it possible for uh, his himself to remain in the position of authority for much longer than uh, had previously been the case. This year is marked by some delicate milestones, 30 years since the bloody crackdown on pro-democracy demonstrations in and around Tiananmen Square, 60 years since the Dalai Lama fled the, uh, from Tibet into exile, and finally on October 1st, which, by the way, is my 30th anniversary here at KPDQ, 70 years since the founding of communist China. So this is a very sensitive year in China. Born of turmoil and revolution, the Communist Party came to power in 1949 on the back of decades of civil war in which millions died and has always been on high alert uh, for Luan or chaos and valued stability above all else at whatever cost. This is the year 70th anniversary of the founding of New China, Xi told legislators from Inner Mongolia on Tuesday, the opening day of the annual meeting of the parliament. Maintaining sustained, healthy economic development and social stability is a mission that is extremely arduous, he said. He's tightened the party's grip on almost every facet of government and life since assuming power back in 2012. Last year, parliament amended the country's constitution to remove term limits, so he can stay as long as he likes and allow him to stay in the office for the rest of his life, should he wish so. Though it's not clear if uh, that will happen and Xi hasn't mentioned it in public. I mean, he doesn't really have to. Later in the year, the party will likely hold a, a what they call a plenum of its top leadership focused on what China calls party building. Diplomats and sources with ties to China's leadership say a concept that refers to furthering party control and ensuring its instructions are followed to the letter. In late January, the party again stressed loyalty and new rules on strengthening party um, party political building, telling members they should not fake loyalty or be low-level red in a lengthy document carried by state media. It matters now more than ever what you think and what you do as party members, as citizens of the People's Republic of China. Be on high alert to all kinds of erroneous thoughts, vague understandings, and bad phenomena in ideological areas, it warned. Keep your eyes open, see things early, and move on them fast. Now think about the underground church. Let me read that paragraph again from this, the um, do- lengthy document carried by state media. Be on high alert of all kinds of erroneous thoughts, vague understandings, and bad phenomena in ideological areas. Keep your eyes open, see things early, and move on them fast, end quote. Well, on the 1st of March, Xi spoke at the Central Party School, which trains rising officials, mentioning the word loyalty at least seven times, according to official accounts. Xi noted that whether an official is loyal to the party is a key gauge of whether they have ideals and convictions. Loyalty always comes first, he said. By the way, there are within the Communist Party leadership some followers of Christ. How will that pan out? Duncan Inns Kerr, who's a regional director for Asia at the Economist Intelligence Unit, said China was concerned about resistance at lower levels to following party orders, the slowing economy, and also about demands for political reforms as people get steadily richer. The desire for control is not something particular to any time period, he said. It is a fundamental tenet of autocratic governments that they are constantly paranoid about being overthrown. Xi looms large over this year's sessions of China's largely rubber stamp parliament, known as the National People's Congress, which has always been stacked with people chosen for their absolute fealty to the party, or at least the hoped for fealty. Government ministers who spoke to reporters on the sidelines of parliament's opening session peppered their comments with references to Xi 16 times in all. Customs ministers uh, pay uh, 
said uh, that Xi himself pays great attention to not allowing foreign garbage into the country, a reference to China's ban on solid waste imports, part of the country's war on pollution. We talked about that earlier today. Ideology comes first this year, and one Western diplomat who was attending the parliamentary session as an observer said, it's all about the 70th anniversary. The party has increasingly been making roots, uh, rooting rather, um, rooting out disloyalty and wavering from the party line, a disciplinary offense to the uh, to be enforced by its anti-corruption watchdog, whose role was ostensibly to go after criminal acts such as bribery, lesser bureaucratic transgressions and so on. The graft buster said last month it would uncover political deviation in its political inspection this year of provincial governments and ministries. Top graft busters in a January speech to the corruption watchdog, a full transcript of which the party released in February, used the word loyalty eight times set an example with your loyalty to the party china has persistently denied its war on corruption is about political maneuvering or g taking down his enemies g told an audience in seattle in 2015 that the anti-graft fight was no house of cards style power play in a reference to the netflix u.s political drama the deeper fear for the party is some sort of unrest or a domestic or even international event fomenting a crisis that would end its rule G told officials in January they need to be on high alert for black swan events. That same month, the top law enforcement official said Chinese police must focus on withstanding color revolutions or popular uprisings and treat the defense of China's political system as central to their work. The party has meanwhile shown no interest in political reform, has been doubling down on the merits of the Communist Party, including this month rolling out English language Uh, Propaganda videos on state media run Twitter accounts to laud Chinese democracy. Twitter remains blocked in China. The official state news agency, Jinghao, uh, said in an English language commentary on Sunday that China was determined to stick it to stick to its political might have been correct the first time around stick to its political model and rejected Western style democracy. The country began to learn about democracy a century ago, but soon found Western politics did not work here. Decades of turmoil and civil war followed, it said. Of course, much, uh, much else followed there as well. But this insensitive year for China, in which there are several important anniversaries, it means for those whose thinking does not line up either in the bureaucracy or outside, does not line up with official state policy, are in danger of being pressed. I'll just leave it at that. Pressed. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for those who are committed to following Christ, whatever the political climate, whatever the environment. And I hope we would do the same. Whatever the political environment here, whatever the trends, whatever's popular, we would choose Christ and his word. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for listening to The Georgine Rice Show and making it part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.